Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Thanks to a late win over Crystal Palace, Arsenal can now thread the needle of finishing above Spurs, but not in the Europa Conference. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the black man, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Who boy, it is interesting because we can now finish above Spurs while also not finishing in the Europa Conference. Now, some of you, some of you weird people, I don't know who they might be, <coughs> want to be in the Europa Conference, but those people are dumb and bad and should hide their feelings. The point is, uh, we did get there. Even if we got there late, it's a really interesting game to discuss, even if it happens at a time of the season where a lot of the intrigue is over. Um, West Ham beating West Brom means that top six is no longer possible, but St. Totteringham's Day is, and boy, did Spurs look really, really, really bad, which is really, really, really funny. The fans are back, which also means that we can go from the cold analytical reaction to the performance to the ha-ha in-your-face reaction to those annoying Palace fans getting shut up late to the injustice of the referee and all the good stuff that football's supposed to be about. I do think it's interesting that the one offside call that could have helped us by ruling out a Palace goal is the first time this season I've seen them not have a camera angle where they could draw the lines. Interesting. Conspiracy against Arsenal? Obviously. Here to discuss that and more with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hold pause. Woohoo! And Clive, you can find him on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And Tim, you can find him on Twitter. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. Okay, there's a lot to get to in this game, and I think we can kind of take it chronologically at first and then uh, expand out a little more analytically. Clive, the way the game started, I I think we're starting to learn that This is real. This thing of Arsenal being able to start to dominate possession in ways we didn't early in the season, push the ball up the pitch in ways we didn't, get into dangerous positions the way we didn't, and still not turn that into chances is a real thing. I found myself feeling we were playing well, but I looked at halftime and we had three shots against Crystal Palace. It's not good enough. And for me, a lot of this breaks down to the fact that the way we are playing for one reason or another leads to a lot of triangles in the half space and the wide spaces, but not a lot of action around the center space, around inside the box. There's one man in the box. It's, uh, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit later about whether uh, Leo Messi, I mean, Joe Willick, uh, comes back to Arsenal. But for you, Clive, that initial period of the match where we did seem to dominate, but didn't seem to create chances, 
what's working, but also not working to make that happen. Oh, okay, so this is try to keep your answer to fifty minutes or less. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> man, we could do we can literally do a podcast on that question alone. All right, we none of us will stop talking. There's a whole we'd, summer. We'd, we'd cross over each other as well. So, like the way we play, it's pretty simple. We we progress into wide areas. We we set down the middle of the tee. We go into wide areas. We try to create combinations, triangles, or diamonds in wide areas, and then we. We normally have a secondary movement into the box. So when we go down one side, we, we have the other side go collapse in. That secondary movement is really key. So what's going wrong? And I, I saw some articles today, and um, I haven't responded to them because I don't agree with some of them. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think we can play our shapes. And as you said last night on the interview action earlier, it's up to it's the coach's job to get us to the last third or from there on in it's the players it's funny that because I agree with that and every one of us in the world that's listening to this podcast right now that's played football when you're near the goal I tell you what happens you're not thinking about the coach you're thinking about your win bonus you're thinking about your goal bonus you're thinking about oh my god I'm going to score which is the greatest thing in the history of mankind mm. I find it incredible how some people are blaming players for being overcoached in that moment around the box. No, 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 no. It's about what you do on, as you progress the ball. The number one thing I think is wrong with us at the moment is our pace of pass. Our pace of pass is not promoting forward movement. It's not, it's not, it's what it does, the ball arrives, it arrives like a slow taxi. Everyone gets out of the cab <laughs> when we're waiting for the, the opposition to come over and then we send us back around the other way. Our intention to move the ball quickly at pace, have a good touch, move it again at pace. What that drives, it drives proactive movement. I think the ball is moving slower, the tempo slower, people receiving standing still. They're taking the easy option to pass to easy passes. And because they're taking easy passes, they're not moving. So why are they going to move into areas where they need to be to move people around? We have to just speed up. Again, Move the ball at pace. If you can even think back to the Chelsea Man City game the other week, because there's no crowd, you can really hear the ball being kicked. You can hear it moving. And mm. some of these top games, the ball is moving at pace. And what that does is it tests your touch. You wrap it into somebody and it tests your touch and it forces you to move it on somebody else quickly. That's a simple thing we need to change. Following your pass again. Once you punch it, go. Go again, secondary movement, go, follow your pass, move zones, make people track you. And the goal, the first goal was a classic, wasn't it? It wasn't even a triangle, it was a two against three, but they created four momentum. One touch, down the side, back heel, inside, two touch, cross, people collapsing in, goal. It, it isn't hard, we just lost our way a bit, and the, and the basic is pace of pass, which drives the movement. And I think... That, for me, is not working. But there, there are other things in it. Trust me, I'm sure you'll get to them. Players in certain positions, their profiles, their makeup, how they how they play, how they devastate other people. There are other things. I don't want to take it all now, but that, to me, is the number one thing. And what I will say is, although I do feel Arsenal are slightly overcoached in certain scenarios, which I think could maybe nullify some people's thought processes, don't tell me that when you're in the last third, a player's instincts should take over. The whole reason why we play this game is to score goals. 
And I don't think you need to be coaching people around the box. It should just happen. If you if you have to coach people, you've got the wrong people, in my mm. opinion. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it is difficult because we so want to draw conclusions about the coach that any strength or weakness of the team we want to attribute to the coach. And certainly there is some balance there between the coach having to get players into positions where they can do damage, but also the players being able to do some basic things that can't be coached. And one thing, Tim, that I still can't quite get my head around is why this team just can't play one-touch passes or passes with the right velocity. I've been mixed on Thomas Party, but the one thing I'll say is when he hits a pass, he hits it the way Invincibles used to hit a pass. I, I know when you invoke that mm. word, people just roll their eyes, but like you watch film of the Invincibles, like every pass zips to where it's going. And like, I can't remember, was Dennis Bergkamp who said like, hit it to me as hard as you can, it's my job to control it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, that may be apocryphal, but like Thomas Party hits the ball and it stays hit. The rest of our players, I think their goal is it's like bocce. They're trying to get the ball to come to a stop on the foot of the player they're passing it to. Um, yep. And it, it is the case that so many moves get to the right area. And then four touches for Pepe to look up, not, you know, shoulder fake, head fake, give it back to El Nenny, El Nenny, shoulder fake, look up, look to his left, look back, give it to Chambers, Chambers back to And like, it's not one touch. It's not at tempo. And you can push a team back, but if you want to play your way through the runs have to be more intentional and urgent, and the ball has to get there with zip on time and, and at tempo. How much of this, if we want to pull Arteta out of the equation, is simply that these players have to improve at the one-touch, on-time, tempo-based passing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that to it. I think you've either really got to be good at that kind of um, you know, push-and-run stuff um, or else you do, I, I mean, like, for example, Liverpool don't really do that, but they do the big switches all the time. They drag you over mm-hmm. to one side of the pitch and then wallop. They go over to the fullback on the other side. Um, and we don't really do that either. We, we do, I mean, we do it every now and then, like David Luiz can do that, and but, uh, but and, and Party William can do is, that as well. William don't, don't, you dare. One of our, don't you dare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, no, I don't think do it's it. interesting. Oh, for God's sake. No. No, it's interesting. <laughs> Willian is one of our switchiest, if not our switchiest passers. And my point being not more Willian, but the others, there's a reason that's good shit. And we need somebody needs to pick up the baton from Willian because actually he may not spend a lot of time on the pitch. But one of the things he does do is he'll do that switch pass to the other side. Uh, intelligently to be, to be fair to you and I'll bring Tim back into it but I think two things that we can definitely say one is that Clive and I rewatched the Villarreal game and we really missed the opportunity to do big switches so I totally agree with you there the other thing is one player who has been a good player who switches it for us is Shaka and he hasn't mm. been playing in central sure. midfield and that that's a miss so I apologize Tim the floor is yours the willing interruptions <laughs> are over <laughs> yeah and and also the, we we've got an issue of balance up front as well because some of these players we all really want to see up front um or or in the forward line rather myself included um on you know like like Martinelli doesn't play that game Pepe doesn't really play that game like Pepe's high touch um you know like you said he he he'll take lots of touches and do lots of fakes and things like that. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. Martinelli just kind of wants to run off the ball, which I, th- I think you need uh, one of. 
and really like the, one of the reasons that um, Smith Rose sticks out like a sore thumb in this team is because of how quickly he moves the ball. He doesn't necessarily move it long distances, but he's provocative with the way that he moves it. Even if he doesn't necessarily move it forward, he puts something on it and then he moves as if to say, right, and now you can give it back to me. Like he, he provokes that one touch play in a way that a lot of our players kind of don't. And so we don't get an awful lot of that combination stuff. Lacazette does it, but then the problem it like this is like whack-a-mole, right? You play Lacazette up front, then yeah, you do all that, but then there's there's not enough presence in the box to actually. You, then you progress the ball better, but then there's no one in the box to actually do anything with it. So we we do have a question of balance here. I, I completely agree that the ball just moves glacially sometimes. And you look at um, the opening goal in this game. And the thing that breaks Palace open, I, I agree with you, Elliot. I think we were good in the first half, even if we only had three shots. I still, th- I was looking at it and I was like, when the goal came, it wasn't a surprise. It didn't come out of nowhere. Like we had them under pressure and they had lots of players in their box, lots of bodies there. But I, I don't think they were comfortable. I think it, it were, the reason we didn't have a lot of shots is because they just had eight bodies in the area. But I was looking at it and I was thinking, no, we're wearing them down. We're putting them under pressure. We're just keeping the ball in their final third. We're looking for angles like we're probing here. That's what I thought. Um, and that stopped happening in the second half. And that was the issue. So even though our shot count wasn't high in the first half, you got the impression that we wore them down. And eventually... Saka and Tierney kick into gear on that left-hand side, quick combination. Um, We were trying to find that right-hand side, and actually there was quite a bit of switching in that first half as well, particularly over to Chambers on the right, because we knew that Wilfred Zaha plays on the left for Palace, and he's not. uh, if he does track back, he's not going to be that effective at it. And so we were trying to hit that that pocket quite a lot as well. And so there were things I really liked about that in the first half, about the kind of the speed of movement and the speed of the pass and 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 just keeping them under pressure. I, I just can't explain why it disintegrated um, after half time. That that's what I really can't explain. And I can't explain why that keeps happening either. I don't know if that's overcoaching, whether there's some natural caution there, whether it's the manager's fault, whether it's the players get into this mindset of as Clive said on the instant reaction playing 3-0 football or 1-0 like Mm, I can't put my finger on what that is but there's something about us that we're just we're just a team that plays in bursts like even Mm. in our really good performances it's really our opinion of a lot of those performances is coloured by 20 good minutes like Leeds right that's possibly the standout home performance of the season we won 4-2 the last half an hour we, we weren't even in it. Like it was 4 0, and Leeds got it back to 4 2, and we were all shitting ourselves <laughs> about it going to 4 yeah. 4 because we played well for half an hour. It's just we scored four goals on that occasion. So I can't explain what it is that makes us um, like really hit the brakes. Um, and I don't know how deliberate it is, um, but I guess we're going to see next season. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, like, I I do feel that we have gotten better the basic bring the ball up the pitch and have more dangerous possession part of the game. But as long as we are going to have three shots or four, I mean, we finished this game with six shots. Now we had three big chances. We scored three goals. And oh, by the way, three really good goals. I mean, an extraordinary piece of individual skill from Pepe um, for the third. The second is a a beautiful Ozilian pass from from Odegaard into the great run by Gabby and a nice little 
uh, intentional leg control for a tap-in finish. And the first goal is beautiful exchange between uh, Saka and Tierney, and then across into the space you want someone being brave and making a run, and Pepe is making that run, and he finishes it with his right foot acrobatically. They're great goals. Just yeah. not enough chance. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, I I think one of the issues we may have is is a bit of an intangible, but we haven't really sorted out whose team this is yet. Like, um, you remember we, well, I, I spoke a lot about that that kind of tension, which I thought was a healthy tension between Sanchez and Ozil, because you had, like, Ozil, who was absolutely precise as a brushstroke, and then you had Sanchez, who was just, like, dynamite. And so you had, like, the lock picker and the guy that will blow the doors off. And there was always a tension around whose team it was, but actually having both of them was really, really helpful. What we don't have yet is, like, you look at that attack, who does it belong to? who's like who's the alpha of it because Aubameyang's just not that type of player because he's too low touch too low involvement we haven't yet got to a stage where you can say yeah the midfield's parties and Xhaka is like his his sidekick like it, it doesn't work like that yet so I wonder if we've got some things going on there where usually in those gaps in the game where you're not completely on top someone goes okay you know, I, I, it, it's a bit overwrought to say like a Steven Gerrard type or do you know what I mean? But even <laughs> yeah. when we had like Fabregas and you've got right, Rosicki is going to have 15 minutes of the game and then Hleb's going to have 15 minutes of the game. And then Adebayo is going to bully everyone for 15 minutes. And in those pauses, it's Fabregas. It's like, OK, there's a bit of a lull here. I'm picking this up. I wonder if we just don't have that those players yet or those players are yet to really come to the fore. Yeah, I think that is a fair question. I, I certainly think that there is something about the way we are opting to build play and, and specifically how that the building of that play ends in the final third that is interesting because it is very trendy right now for teams to overload in the wide area and the half spaces, things like that. If you get a chance, I strongly recommend you go to the TIFO football video on Arteta's tactics and the donut that they kind of talk about there. Clive also did some donut talk, although he did it more in mint form. I prefer a donut because it's more sugary and calorie oriented, but Clive went healthy with a mint, a polo mint uh, on the Patreon pod. But I, I do recommend it because it shows kind of where that, the density of the player availability becomes and, and that the absence of that availability in central spaces. And I think as this podcast goes on, we will probably wind up maybe asking questions about, Aubameyang and, and his role in that, um, I, I think there's a big Aubameyang discussion to be had that isn't even really pointing a finger at him, but sort of how he influences our play. But Paul, let's let's step back from the sort of um, tactical up our own rear end section for a moment to, to go back to the concrete parts of what happened in this game. This felt like football because there were fans back. And the two things that I realized, like I, I said this on the Patreon pod, but I, I felt cold a little bit from the Chelsea win because the performance was not great. You know, we, we kind of, we wrote our luck and we got there, which is great. But what you realize is when the fans are booing and screaming and singing, same old Arsenal always cheating and booing you for getting kicked, that emotion gets plugged into it. And that emotion changes the way you feel about the game. You're less focused on, oh, why are we tippy tapping it around and more focused on screw those palace fans. I want to get one over on them. The other thing it does is it changes the dynamic for referees. And this was a game that Anthony Taylor seemed desperate not to have to take control of. I I hate to constantly bring it back to referees, but I also think that 
this was a game that could have gotten badly out of control. And the Chambers stamp is a red card. It should be. And you look at some of the reds we've gotten, and it's hard to know how that's not a red card. The elbow to the chin should be a red card. But the one that I am so astonished by that really blows my mind is Kieran Tierney getting his ankles kicked in the box after the ball's gone. And I realize it's not a vicious kick or anything, but like, you you can't do that. (laughs) It's just not legal. So I'm curious which of the incidents you felt most aggrieved by and in particular, that weird incident of kicking Tierney in the penalty area and how Taylor looks at that and, and, and VAR looks at that and doesn't decide anything about it. Uh, like the blow to the face stuff was just a line that, like that's a modern red card. Uh, wasn't back in the day, but that's just supposed to be the the line that you cross. You do. I, it I think to, on on one of the broadcasts, by the way, in England, Paul, they said you'd get thrown out of the nightclub for that, which I think is a yeah. good a good line. <laughs> That's a good metric for whether it should be a red card. <laughs> yeah, um, like and the, you know they've apparently he was in a weird mood letting stuff go. Like personally, as a neutral, I'd kind of be okay with all of those not being red cards, but they were were right on the second line. Um, each time the the kick it behind Tierney was so stupid. I don't know that I'd give give a red card for it, but it was red cardable. And as I think I said yesterday, I mean they were all in the eighty to ninety percent red card, a, a deeply orange. Somebody should have gone for one of those. Like I, I understand the referee saying, "Oh well, the energy of the crowd. I'll let the first one go, or something like that." I, mm. you know, it's five minutes into the game. I, uh, let's keep eleven players on. But after, like, it, they were pretty spiky in particular. We might have been a bit roly aroundy, but I think we had our reasons. And they were pretty spiky. So by the time the second one and the third one came along, they were due. So like, you're you're eighty ninety percent. Fuck it. Um, you, you want to elbow uh, El Nenny under the chin. Now, he should have gone to ground, I think, quite legitimately. He didn't need to roll around like he'd been poleaxed. But I think that's a legitimate... Uh, in cricket, you you make an appeal for a decision. I think that's a legitimate go to ground, grab your chin, and and make an appeal to the referee. Unfortunately, we stood on our feet and other people piled in, and then it's a bit of scuffles and like mm. six of one, half a dozen in the, of the other, but it wasn't. Um, it was frustrating, but honestly... It all gets wiped. Once we beat them, I prefer the fact there were 11 men on the pitch, but it's it was kind of infuriating, and it was in the period of the game where we were good. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, you know, they could have gone down to 10 men, and we might not have outplayed them. You know how that goes? Sometimes the 10-man, they lean into it. We don't respond the way we could, so yeah. I won't get... But, yeah, I mean, the basic point, the refereeing... Uh, what was that? How was one of those not a red card? The, the stamp I thought was pretty bad. It just wasn't a straight leg stamp, but uh, that was well beyond the yellow. It, I, you know what's crazy? It goes to show you how like flexible and like just well trained these these players are. Because if you do that to me, you know I, I'm not walking for months. You know what I mean? It's just like the flexibility they have in their ankles and stuff to flex to that position and take that amount of strain. And for Chambers to be fine, like, and maybe, maybe you're saying, no, that's just luck. It's got nothing to do. I do think the way they train their ankles and their joints and their flexibility and stuff protects them from things like that. Because I don't know how you just Those walk away. Those studs from on your bone 
Uh, I mean, it depends on how it falls. Sometimes it won't hurt that much, but other times, fucking hell. It's got, yeah, I mean, just the pain of it. Um, I would be crying. That's all I know. I do have to say that, like, I was so desperate at the end of the game when El Nenny went up late um, and starts screaming before he's even been contacted and then goes to ground with his hand over his face to, to time waste when we're just getting to the end of the game. I wanted so bad for him to pull the hand away and have a little smirk. Who did that? Was it... Sergio Ramos. There's some famous David Luiz. David Luiz. <laughs> it's a David Luiz one, isn't it? Of course it is. Who else? Who else would it be? Um, yeah. All right. Well, so Clive, let, let's have the Obama Yang talk just real quick because I think you can feel that Obama Yang is now maybe an issue for us without necessarily wanting to point the finger and be like Obama Yang's bad. And this is sort of my working theory, which is Pierre Emerick Obama Yang has one superpower and has had one superpower his whole career, which is. He gets into phenomenal goal-scoring positions, high XG goal-scoring positions with frequency. And when you do that, if there's one thing data has told us about football, you're going to score a boatload of goals. I think the thing with Aubameyang, though, is if Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a 23, 24, 25-goal-a-season striker, league, league goal-a-season striker, he is a guy you want in your team. If he's a 16, 15, 14-goal-a-season striker, suddenly he's a problem because he doesn't do enough other things that can offset for a more modest goal return. He has one superpower, get into great scoring positions and finish those chances. If he's not doing that, he's not doing much else. Now you could say the problem for him is the way we're playing doesn't allow him to leverage that skill as much as possible, and and that may absolutely be fair. And I'm not saying he's talentless outside of that. The funny thing is when you look at Lacazette's data, Lacazette isn't elite at anything. He's the quintessential sort of mid-table striker. All of his data says decent but he's decent at some things that Obama Yang's bad at and right now Obama Yang's not getting us those goals so like do you see his presence in the center creating challenges for us in terms of accessing those spaces and building through those spaces in ways that are solved by using Lacazette despite his his flaws you know just as a pure goal scorer I think um let's take Lacazette first um Lacazette is more intelligent game intelligent than uh, Aubameyang. I think he reads people around him better. He He's more forceful in showing himself and he he gives of himself a little bit more physically. Right? He's prepared to take physical batterings. And so I think he reads the room uh, particularly around these younger players better than Aubameyang does. Aubameyang's a bit more on their periphery and I think Aubameyang suffers from the fact of what I call our poor territory game. We spend too long in the wrong part of the pitch. And so, again, I always hear me say things like disconnecting. I think he disconnects from games when he has to stand there watching Holding and Chambers playing parsey parsey to each other. Right? That's not going to get him excited. And he gets less and less excited. He stops running in behind. He comes short. What he tends to do is lay off in one touch um, when he comes short. And then he's... He's not really secondary moving in behind again. He's just trying to he's trying to do what Lacazette does. You know, he's trying to say, I can do this, I can show my feet. And he tries to knock it he tries to knock the ball off. So we're we're suffering. We're suffering from that a little bit. I think he's suffering. The worry the worrying thing for me is the players around him are young, they're our core, they're de- they're developing. And I'm not sure he suits that group in the best way because they're a little bit light, a little bit flighty. And I, I find myself wanting a presence at center forward. 
I find myself wanting a combination of the two players, and I have done for about three years now. I wish we could have the speed over the top of Aubameyang. I wish we could have Lacazette be a similar physical size to Aubameyang. They're just not quite the player for me that, that we need. And they're both good players, and we've had this debate about Aubameyang left, Aubameyang centre. The, the Aubameyang left debate is coming back into my mind again. But as soon as we don't build up, I'm going to be thinking, got to get 10 to 4 because we need some more build-up and creativity on the left-hand side. It doesn't work. But we just caught, let's be honest, we bought the two strikers, and it was a bad recruitment decision. They don't mesh together. We don't play a front two, although I think we maybe should start thinking about it. Um, we don't play a front two. Until we play a front two, they're not going to work. They're not going to quite be everything every single week as a centre forward, neither of them. And one can't one can't play on the left and one can play on the left, but then we lose his best attributes on occasion, depending on where we're playing on the pitch and how we're playing. So it's back to balance again, you know? I couldn't help but feel last night watching the game that Pepe was really showing a lot in the box what we want our Aubameyang to do. He he was moving, he was great. He was moving into lines where he could be found. He doesn't hide behind people at like Lacazette and Aubameyang do on crosses. And I look at Pepe and I, I just kept looking at, I kept thinking Iheanacho. I kept thinking, you're looking like Iheanacho and Aubameyang's looking like Vardy. Why don't we do it? I mean, little things that cost my mind. You know, we're thinking development and tactics, etc. So, it's a balancing, mate. I don't. I we both spoke last night. We don't want to kill the guy. I find myself defending him, but there's a problem at centre forward for Arsenal, rather than a problem with the centre forward. If that makes sense, it makes tons of sense. And the funny thing is, like, I mean, look, I don't want to rehash the Aubameyang contract situation. Everybody knows what we did. You know, the debate we had around that. People said, you know, we can't replace his goals. And I certainly understand that argument. But without the goals, he starts to look like a player that we can improve upon. Can Martinelli step in there? Can Balogun step in there? Can Pepe? I mean, when you see Pepe in the box, near the box, what a difference he makes versus when he's out on the wing. I I think that's true for Saka too, by the way. Winning us penalties, scoring us goals. Uh, Next evolution has to be to find ways for our wide players to be more in the central and half spaces than the half spaces and the wings. Um, I think the answer is not Lacazette, though. So it's it's a total. I think it's a total reset at that position. Personally, Paul, quick word on that before we talk just a little bit about um, some of the the other very talented players in our team that can produce more potentially. <laughs> Look on the tactical stuff. Much as you might want to keep me away from it, well, I just um, want you to talk about refereeing and the fans. Just give, <laughs> just give us soft factor stuff. Um, I think it's important to remind us, like we're talking about the 10%, I would say, that's not working great at the moment. The How do we get to the next level? Um, but we take for granted, right, where we were a while ago, which was we're a lot better. Um, there's a lot that's working about us playing football and attacking. Uh, the You know, we kind of have this five up front when one of the fullback wingbacks joins in and you got Saka and maybe Tierney on one side, you've got Smith-Rowe and Pepe on the other side, Aubameyang in the middle, you got Party really zipping those passes around. Um, there was a lot that worked well about this, but we should remember other teams do tactics too. And if there's one thing Roy Hodgson does, he organizes uh, Crystal Palace. So they're very solid in the middle. You know, what? as I I was critical of Aubameyang yesterday. I feel a little bit guilty on it. I think it's a fair criticism uh, across multiple games. In this one game, he basically doesn't get any service. 
and but that's not to say we didn't do a, like our the good football section of this game was good football the build ups good uh we do interesting triangles there's triangles there's good combinations there's passes fizzed across the 6 yard box it's kind of we're almost there the synchronicities are coming we're a lot better Pepe is much more integrated into our play, not just getting results, not just finishing. He is an important component of how we play now. You you sense that him and Arteta have have kind of they're on the same page. They're feeling good about his role in the team and his role is becoming more significant all the time. Um, so there's a lot that's good, and I think that's and that's not a rah rah uh, kind of wave the flag. It's it's when we talk tactically, I think it's tweaks to some degree. The, the basic structure's there. It's working well. Crystal Palace will always make you look like you're kind of starving the center a little bit. We could have done better. Um, but, you know, pretty good is pretty good. And uh, I, the interesting thing is why we're so shocked shy in this particular game because it felt like I was shocked when you told me it was whatever. Six. Five, six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that that surely not. I feel we've it's done us an injustice, not just VAR and the refereeing and and COVID and stuff, but XG has been harsh to us in this game. Um, and, well, the irony and, is the XG was okay because we had three yeah, yeah, big true, chances. True. So the funny thing is, I mean, I think what I would say is, look, and we saw a little of this under Emery. So th- so there's more to this than just what's happening with Arteta, which is that this is a team that when it creates chances, they tend to be pretty high XG. We have had a good hot XG per shot metric, meaning when we do create chances, we tend to create very good ones, but we create very, very few of them. And that that is really the issue that I think has to be solved next. And so, Tim, I guess what I would say to you is... Could, oh, could I just finish I would, off? Yes, just, please, I yes, think this yes. is a classic for the rewatch. I think we're during the f- section we're good. We're we're actually pretty damn good. We come up through the middle. Like we don't have the the Emery don't uh, horseshoe passing problem at all here. We're much more progressive, proactive in terms of our play in this game. Are, are we are, are we shot shy across multiple games as opposed to just this game? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we we just are, and I mean, look, have there been yeah. games where we've broken out of it? Sure, but like we're not, yeah. okay. we're not anywhere near the top of the the list on that. And and again, I'm not saying that's the only problem you have to solve for solve for that problem, but I think it is fair to say that something about how we're playing and building up is leading to this this shot issue, and it would be interesting mm-hmm. to to sort of understand what yeah. that is, um, because I mean, if you look at it, also it's there's there's just not a lot of centrality again. And I, I do think that when you don't access central spaces and you do b- build this a lot... This particular the- five up front thing is interesting because you do get Smith-Rowe hanging close to Pepe, for example, he in was this very game. Close. I mean, Saka, some people were saying, was he playing wide? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and well, we've so, seen that a lot. So, yeah. Tim, but, but here's the other thing. We did score three goals, and they were three quite good goals. And if you look at the players mm-hmm. involved, I mean, Tierney and Saka help create one for Pepe. Pepe makes one by himself, and Odegaard and Martinelli do it. You know, the one thing that I, I kind of hope Arteta is learning right now is, you know what? Talent makes the job easier. Talent mm-hmm. makes coaching easier. Talent solves problems on the pitch. I think one thing we've just been wanting from Arteta all season is put the talented guys out there. And 
to be fair, he's doing a lot more of that. And even with his substitutions, they're, they're more aggressive. He's trying to get Gabriel Martinelli on there. You know, he brings Odegaard on. Mm-hmm. He's letting Pepe is now playing, you know, long stretches of matches, entire matches. So how much of this is just down to Arteta realizing, you know, identifying who his most talented guys are and starting to really lean on them? Because Pepe is kind of like discount Alexis. When he's not scoring goals or creating assists, he's driving you nuts. But oh, by the way, he yeah. does those other things two or three times a game, which in a low-scoring sport will win you a game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think Pepe's in classic uh, flat-track bully um, territory, which, mm. which I think is great. <laughs> we need we, we need to start bullying on the flat track a little bit more. Um, and, and this was, yeah, in many ways, this was a perfect game for him. Like, he doesn't, I mean, he struggles to do that against the bigger teams. And let's face it, most attackers do. That's kind of how it works. It's harder to do it against bigger teams. Um, and and it's it's so one one of the things I'd say um, I am relatively positive about was do you remember we had this discussion in about January right where we'd we'd fallen on this like front four that looked like it was working and my whole thing was well actually we've got six or seven really good attackers who can do quite different things and different profiles mm. and this is um this is your your classic squad building. Um, you know, uh, the squad building dilemma. Um, and we've had this conversation many times over the years about what do you really want from a squad? Do you want the guy that can plug in? I, this really applies to Joe Willock as well, right? Joe Willock doesn't really fit into the Arsenal team. Um, but is that a good or a bad thing? You know, do do you want the guy, do you want the analogs or do you want someone who can do something different? And it kind of depends what you need. If you need to change a game from the bench, then yeah, guys like Martinelli and even Willock are, are great but if someone gets injured, uh, you know, if you put like Martinelli in for, I don't know, Saka, for example, that might take some adjustment because they do very different things. If you put Willock in for party, that takes adjustment because they do very different things. So what I really wanted to see was some imagination from the coach in terms of the use of some of these players. And, and again, Clyde made this point on the instant reaction pod. A lot of them aren't tired with with the exception of Saka. Um, Abamyang unfortunately probably is because of malaria, um, but he hasn't even got a ton of minutes in him this season. Not not like he's he's had in previous seasons. So there, there's no, and maybe this contributes to the issue if they're not being alphas because the players just haven't been able to string together enough enough games, with the exception of Saka, um, which is probably why he is our our reference point in many many ways. So it it's. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Because on one hand, we want to see more of some of these players, but on the other, we've criticised Arteta enough for substitutions. And I, I was, I'm kind of in the camp that in the second, I just thought the second half was really poor, and I really didn't think that winner was coming. Um, you know, I guess we had Twitter like agrees a, with you if you want to measure by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I never like with ten minutes to go, I was already writing the doom tweets with ten minutes to go because I didn't see any point in waiting to the final whistle. Um, quite frankly, and and there's a big part of me that thinks it's You're just... You're a busy man, Tim. You had other it, things to get on to, get your it, angry it, tweets in early. Yeah. It, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, and yeah, and so like I, there's a big part of me that thinks that winning this game late is just kind of down to a bit of variance. Like, we often meander through the end of games, and sooner or later, something's going to happen and you're going to score. But on the other hand, I guess... Um, 
we complain about Arteta's substitutions, but the, the goal that wins it for us is two substitutes combining and combining in a really interesting way as well because we know Erdgaard has that ball. He has that ball in behind and we know that Martinelli has that run in behind. And so there you've got a really nice fusion of two very, very different players. And that's what that variety and that difference brings you. You've got the guy who will just keep running and running and running, regardless of whether the ball is any good or not, he's going to keep running. And and you've got the guy who can really play the ball and pick it out. And and that that was that was really interesting. And and so you've got to say that those substitutions may be as obvious as they were, because if you're one one with 20 minutes to go, of course you bring Erdgaard and Martinelli on. But I guess what I'm trying to say is what I've been saying all season, we have a lot of depth in attack, which is why I'm so disappointed with the way we've attacked this season. Like I can't believe how few goals we've scored with all those options. Um, you know, we, we, and look, William was an unused sub last night. Um, and so what does that tell you? Um, mm-hmm. Not just about his form and everything, but it also tells you we've got options. We can, like it's, bad from a squad building point of view and a resource allocation point of view but we have been able to move on from Willian quite easily like we have been able to easily make the decision to curtail his involvement because there are plenty of other options there we were able to make the decision to let Willick, Willick go out on loan because there were other options there because we've got we've got lots of players there and good players and I, I acknowledge that finding the balance within all of that is not always easy particularly when you've got Abamyang, you know, misfiring a bit and Lacazette's misfired and been injured at various points of the season. So it's not been easy. But um, yeah, it it, it is really weird because I I just don't know how to think um, particularly about this because I do think we were kind of a bit lucky and it wasn't really coming. But then on the other hand, you know, you tell me if you told me without watching this game that in the last minute, um, you know, in the 91st minute, Erdgaard, the sub, comes on and plays a brilliant through ball for Martinelli to score a really scrappy goal. I say, oh, that's that's good. So it, it just depends on um, how much stock you put in your emotion during the game, because my emotion was that the game was done at 1-1. But maybe my emotion was biased, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And I think also this is part of the problem with not creating a lot of chances, right, is that Dangerous buildup looks fun early on, but then as you become aware of the fact that you're not actually threatening them, they also become aware of that too, and they're emboldened a little bit. And I thought that, you know, we we saw this, it's funny, we saw this in the Europa League, I want to say, maybe it was last season, where we'd start games really pushing teams back. And Tim, I, I think you even identified this, right? Like, they'd play so scared of us, and then they'd be like, oh, they're powder puff. We don't have to be scared. You know, and the other team would come into it because they'd realize that you're just not hurting them that much. Um, so you really do have to take these periods where you're on top of a team and add that that final thrust to it because if you don't, you really do embolden them. Uh, Clive, the the interesting thing is I also think you have to look at how all of this is interconnected, right? I mean, Pepe is really stuck out on the touchline, but like how much of that is related to who we have at fullback? If we had a more natural right back, would we push Pepe inside more and let him run the touchline? I, I think there are pieces to the puzzle because on the left side where Tierney does run the touchline, Saka can get just a little bit more on the interior, which is helpful. Let's just talk um, central defense just for a minute, though, because I think the season Gabriel's had is a really interesting one. He looked really, really good. A great acquisition, a, a signing that we were sort of using to defend the club against claims that we, we always get it wrong. Um he wasn't perfect. No one's going to be. No one's trajectory is straight up. 
But I think Arteta muddied the waters for him a little bit, making him more of like a specific holding partner and less of a guy who plays regularly or a, a Louise partner, I guess, and Marie was playing with holding it. But the point is, Gabriel was kind of in and out all of a sudden. And I, I think this is sort of an issue for Arteta that he's starting to learn, hopefully. It's the idea, again, that talent makes the job easier. This is your best left center back. Just play him. He spent good money on him. He's at a good age. He's got talent. He's got the physicality. Play him. And I'm not going to say he was perfect in this game, but we're rewarded for playing him because I don't think we have another center back in the team that recovers to make that challenge on Zaha to save the game. It's right before we get the winner. Zaha's in. And he's in largely because Shaka's stepped you know, in the midfield. We've taken a, a, a fullback off. That space is vacated, and we're playing without a net. We're playing high-wire football. But you know what? If you want to win games, if you don't want to draw games, you have to play high-wire football. Arteta was really reluctant to do that when he first arrived, opting instead to keep us from conceding. When we were playing high-wire football late, they did find the pass out to Zaha, and that has to get fixed by, I think, better ball pressure. But Gabriel recovers. So what's your take on this, Clive, in terms of transitioning to a team that has more assets up the pitch, that is playing more high-wire football, and how someone like Gabriel, with that athleticism, becomes a really important part of that and, and you know, leaning into his, his skill set. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I think... It's not really a question, let's be honest, but, you know... Yeah, but I've been listening to you guys talk. And as you were talking, you, you, you were getting me thinking. And I think what we're getting caught up with, maybe lots of people are, is the difference between principles of play and pattern of play. So Arsenal have quite a good pattern of play. Right? So until we get to, the, to the, the areas we need to put our bodies around and it becomes more of a contest, I think we can be rumbled a little bit. But I think we are maybe overly obsessed with pattern of play. I do think we need to impose our principles a little bit more alongside the pattern of play. And by that I mean we have to make sure that, for example, if we are where we play is important. So if you have a pattern of play, one thing, but if you're doing it outside your goal, that's not great. If you're pushing it up the pitch, that brings into into play some of our more creative players and where our talent actually is. But the principle of going forward early as possible alongside the pattern, the emphasis of the principle of play needs to be stronger. How we attack the box, we should flood the box. We flood the box, then one of our principles is we counter, we counter foul on the way out. We over, we overload, we overload. It's a gamble. We like losing spaces, but when we lose the ball, we press the ball very, very quickly. We don't, we suffocate people. Don't allow them to get out, and so the gaps we've left are not are not there. And if they are there, we've got sprinty centre backs like Gabriel and hopefully the guy in France, Saliba, that can cover those gaps and make sure we have a sprinty defensive midfielder. So if they do get away, we can get them. So I think we're getting trapped in a pattern of play far too much and not emphasizing the attacking principles by which we all want to see. Now, to have that type of front-footed, territory-based game that Pochettino used to do, I used to watch Spurs and think, oh, my God, they're crap. How are they not conceding? They're never in their half, basically. They're just never in their half, and that's why they weren't conceding any goals. We're far too much in our half. To do that, you need to have the right players, the right attributes. We must have fast, big-space centre-backs. We must have that. We're not going to feel confident to push forward. We must have fullbacks that give you solidity on the outside. My chat last night about the polo, I mean, was different to what Tifo did. They did it from a, this is how we look, like a donor. I did it from interior, exterior attributes. 
interior players have certain attributes, exterior players have certain attributes. The key from our century defence is how we build up. We massively need a build-up right centre-half. We massively need that. We've got a great left-back who's accompanied on the ball. Gabriel will develop on the ball. We need a right-back who can do a bit on the ball. Absolutely technical right-back. We've got our Burnley right-back where we go there and West Ham and and Palace and all those big-body teams. We've got that right-back in Chambers. When you want to play technical football, we need something else. He's not at the club. We need to do that. Progress up the pitch. Put people back because we've got people who can look after the football. You know, it's very important. And then we have our insurance policy and brains in the interior. Brains to receive on the half turn. People that can sprint and get to the ball and transition and take the ball from people and create broken play, which then brings in your mate, Elliot. Broken play centre forward on a transition. We don't tackle. Why could we can't create transition? We're just a we're just a pattern play team. We don't tackle. Only party tackles. No one else does. And he's the only one that creates transition. When he's beaten, it's over for our central central midfield. Yeah. So we've got a lot to do to bring out the talent in our team. So we, as you were talking, you were getting me thinking: Why are we not creating chances? Every, well, Tim said this: Every chance has to be perfect. And what he means really, every chance has to come from a perfect pattern of play. It's not a contest play. We don't do well in contests. Said it last night. We don't. We're not strong enough, fast enough, physical enough when it really counts to transition and take the ball of people. And that's why physical teams like Palace can be in the game, but despite having 350 less passes. You see what I mean? Yeah. So, it's, so when players like Gabriel are in your team doing well, having a moment of madness, having five passes into the seat, so you're thinking, crikey, he's crap. He's not crap. He's exactly what we need, and we have to just nurture that out of him. Because we saw that switch to play last night, that diagonal, that tells you he can pass. Give me a right-footed version of him that's better on the ball, and we can then start to build this team moving forward slowly. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to think about how we go from where we are now to where we want to be, and I do think the position of centre-backs plays a role in that. And that changes the profile center back you need. If you want to hear about William Saliba and how tantalizing the idea of him and, and Gabriel as a partnership could be, uh, we have a bonus episode that came out just a little while ago uh, where I interviewed Matt Spiro, uh, French football commentator and the author of Sacre Bleu, from Zidane to Mbappe. Um, and he talks about Saliba, what kind of player he is, what that partnership could look like, and really just the, the whole... Uh, history of, and, and background of our relationship with the player and where it goes from there. So definitely something you could check into because I, I think that is an important part of our development. Look, you always should be looking at what the next step is. And I think one thing that we can agree that sometimes gets overlooked is something that's not, something that you don't see as evidently, right? Those latent issues that you don't see as evidently. Center back can be that. You know what else can be that? Growth of the, the hair in your private area. It's a bad segue. Uh, Yeah, like sometimes you just lose track of it. And I get that. That can happen. It's a pandemic. We haven't been going out. We're not necessarily keeping up things the way they were. But now it is time to get back to that. And so what do you do? It's obvious what you do. You get the lawnmower 4.0. 4.0. It's a, a staggeringly effective tool for managing the hair on your body wherever that hair may exist. Four different lengths of guard mean you get... All of the areas taken care of. Ceramic blades with skin safe technology means 
no ouchies, as I might say to my children. No, you don't want you don't want pain. You don't want cuts and abrasions. That's not going to do it. That's not going to make anybody happy. Not you. Not anybody who has to interact with that that whole environment. So I would say use the Lawnmower 4.0. It now has wireless charging, which actually enhances the battery life. I think I charge the thing like once a month, literally. It's incredible how long it goes, and it's wet, dry, so you take it right into the shower with you. It's got a 4,000 Kelvin LED light, so you can see where you're going, what you're doing. Make sure you're getting it right. Get the job done the right way with the right tool. That can be true of your center backs, and it can be true of the body hair shaver that you choose, and I hope you will choose the Lawnmower 4.0, and when you do it, there's all kinds of uh, fun accessories you can get. There's uh, the Weed Whacker for your nose and your ears. There's uh, all kinds of tonics and and self-help uh, uh, products for your areas. I'm, I'm not going to dive into them because they all make me a little uncomfortable, So, which is surprising that I can still be made to feel uncomfortable, but this is good quality stuff. And also you help the podcast, and that's a good thing too. So go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, ArsenalVision, all one word. Uh, that is global, worldwide, free shipping, 20% off. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. And I will ask, as always, Clive, is that enough of that? Leave on, my son. Leave on. Leave on. Some days they're smooth. Some days they're not. Just like my never mind. Okay. Pretty sure that's supposed to be Calvin, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, 4,000 Calvin? Yeah. Really? Okay. Is that right? What did I say? No. Kelvin? Kelvin, you were right. Am, am I okay? You know, here's the important thing. Some it's a bright get light. Touchy about that stuff. It's a, well, look, I, I'm using I'm using a ring light. That's and we're not even filming. Why do I have my ring light on? You just reminded me to turn my ring light off. Don't need that. Okay. Anywho, Paul, a couple things about this game that I really want to dive into, and one of them is Pepe. I, I do want to get to mm-hmm. um, Martinelli and Odegaard as well, but Nicola Pepe is one of those players that that really is going to confound us. I feel because. He, we're not good enough to overlook the, the kind of sensational end product he can produce. Mm-hmm. And Arteta spoke in glowing terms about him after the match, which was great to see. Talking about how hard he works, one of the hardest workers, you know, wanting to do this every game, the ability to do this every game. Um, in fact, when I talked to Matt Spiro, he was saying this is the kind of thing Pepe did regularly in, in league on. But he is a player that when he's not doing the end product stuff, can really drive you nuts, lose the ball, not beat his man. It's wild that he can beat his man so effortlessly in midfield and then fail to do it so often uh, in the final third. How do you feel we can progress in, in terms of the fluency of our attack with a player like Pepe, who so clearly has the kind of end product we desperately need, but maybe maybe has some flaws in his game from just sort of a, a one-touch passing, team-oriented philosophy kind of thing? Yeah, so his side's really interesting because I thought he was very well woven into this game. But uh, then I watched a two-minute 20 highlights, kind of all his touches, and every one of his bloody passes was back to El Nenny. He'd jink inside. He was standing on the touchline. So all his touches were on the touchline, uh, apart from he scored a goal in the middle. Um, but he'd get the ball on the touchline. He'd... Half beater jink past his man, and they passed back to El Nenity again. And may have it may have just been that the runners weren't there, the options weren't there, but they were a few times. Um, and yet it wasn't like in the past. It was a kind of there's a qualitative aspect. Like he, he used to do that in the past, but um, he'd also try and beat too many people, mm. or or people in general. And he didn't really 
there weren't a lot of occasions. He was he was careful with the ball and he kept our possession. Whereas in the past, he's tried to beat two, three players. Yeah, he was 90, and, 91% passing and four of seven on his take on. So, so not a lot of lost possession, really. Yeah, so it was all continuity stuff. Um, but the other wing, I kind of feel it's a function of this, the the four guys up front and the overlapping fullback. And that overlapping fullback, we made a choice, was Tierney. So you actually had Tierney and Saka on that side. Chambers joined the attack um, as we progressed, etc. But he wasn't really overlapping. And that, again, was a choice. Um, I think we just made choices. And the, and the choice on Pepe's side, he needs an overlapping fullback. But we decided to lean into the left side. And that was our choice in this game. Um, when he plays from the left, obviously, he can, it's easier for him to go either way because his left foot will take him up the... Uh, touchline but we've also but it can also bring him inside and he's actually pretty good on his right foot but from the right hand side he doesn't use his right foot it's all left-sided stuff he jinks inside almost every time um especially if the fullback doesn't show him you know shows him inside he he takes the inside so i did feel it was very woven into our game and yet frustratingly him and el nenny were way too safe for me for 90% of this game. They both had moments where they showed what they can do when they go for it. El Nani had a couple of diagonals over the top or first-time balls, but way too often those two players were conservative in this game and maintained possession, which is okay, but it kind of explains why we were playing the good football but not having the, 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 the point on the tip of the pencil to some degree. I think there's some adjustments that need to be made uh, particularly in the El Neni Pepe corridor, because on the other side, if it's uh, party zipping it up to Saka, Tierney, etc., they're making decisions and they're going at uh, at the uh, the the opposition. And you know, Smithrow is obviously over that side too, but somehow they they're not connecting the triangles to the same aggressive extent on that side that we saw on the other side. I did want to make a. a a special mention of Chambers. I think maybe we do him a bit dirty. Um, I think he's been really good. I think he's been pretty good. Yeah. No, no, his no crossing complaint. is like, uh, I'm starting to have T, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold vibes mm. about what, like every one of them is like, they don't all come off and they're not all on the money, but they're all like within inches have been just the perfect ball. Look, we've li- lived through a lot of right backs crossing the ball over the top of the net out in a touch over the end line, <laughs> no one yeah. in particular like skying it to the other side of the pitch. His, his are into a good area. I'll give you that. Look, I, I don't know that we have next season starting right back in our team right now, but I certainly think chambers has been the best of the bunch this season. I, I think you give him that. Um, yeah. And, and so can I just summarize on the right hand side? I think we had three good players that, well, El Nenny's good ish. Um, he's never super exciting. I think El is playing good and integrated, but he needs to make more aggressive choice. We just haven't worked out how to be more aggressive on the right-hand side with that configuration. But I don't think they played bad as such. They just played way too safe, and the better stuff came on the other side or when Smith-Rowe got in there. But I can see why Aubameyang got very little service here. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the heat map from Pepe, he's really out on the right touchline. And you look at his two involvements for his goals and one's at the penalty spot and one is inside the box where players are real scared to deal with him. I just wish we could find a way to get him closer there because he played zero passes to Aubameyang. And I think when your right winger 
plays no passes to your striker. Th- I don't even you- think he played that many to Smith Rowe, who Seven. should have been the one. Yeah. Uh, he was in the area, and he was like, he'd make his Majority little Majority were to Chambers, 18 to Chambers of his 51, and 13 to Party. So he was going backwards. I mean... And yeah. El Nenny? Seven. Seven and seven, Smith Rowe and El Nenny. Yeah, so he was going back to the midfielder a lot. Yeah. I, I just think in general, though, if your right winger is, his heat map is all the way out on the touchline, and he makes no passes to your center forward, you know, it, it is... I, I think it, it is an idea for us to look at and say, okay, we can probably do better. And by the way, zero four crossing, but only four crosses. So he's out on the touchline, but he's not out on the touchline serving in crosses. Nope. Four crosses. So it was all safe, safe, safe. Yeah, and safe, Smith safe, throws safe, out yeah. there, and he's making a couple of runs in between. Like, I don't think anybody's doing bad on that wing. We just haven't worked out the synchronicity. The patterns aren't there on that side. So, yeah, someone's got to get into the box from that side, and it's got to be Pepe, yep. and so push him closer would be my view, which means overlapping the fullback, which, again, means Arteta's going to have to play a little more high-wire football. So uh, we got to let Clive go, unfortunately, but we still have more to talk about. Uh, Clive's on Twitter at ClivePFC. As always, thanks, my friend. Thank you very much. Okay, that was Clive. You will get more Clive in an upcoming episode of Clive Does Football Talk with the Arsenal Vision crew. So, um, Tim... It yeah. is it is really interesting seeing what the future of this club could be and how much of it is dependent on some really, really talented youngsters. William Saliba mm-hmm. may still be among them. Emma Smith-Rowe clearly is. Bukayo Saka mm-hmm. clearly is. Um, we could maybe even have a, have a quick chat about Joe Willock before this pod is over. Let's do that. But Gabriel Martinelli is... I just think he is such a special player. And it is interesting because with his absolute maniacal passion for end product and Pepe providing quite a lot of end product and Bukayo Saka having played over 3,200 minutes and, you know, having played five different positions over the last month and looking a little fatigued, it does give you a window into some of the hard choices and good hard choices that'll have to be made next season. Yep. I, I think Martinelli is one of those players who, it's so cliche to say you have to find a way for him to be on the pitch, but similar to Pepe, the absolute unstoppable energy to get in. You talk about getting into the box, right? Pepe needs to try harder to do that because when he does it, he makes an impact. Martinelli is in the box. You're not keeping him out. That's where you're going to find him. I, I just think, you know, if you look at the run he makes, I realize the Odegaard pass is sensational. And we'll come on to that. But the way Martinelli creates that space you know it'd be easy to be offside or to, or to make the run in such a way that there's no room between him and the the byline right but he he makes such a smart run he makes it clear so Odegaard can see it I do think he's clever to keep his hand out of the way get the touch on the knee and tap it in I I, I wonder how you feel about what Martinelli adds for us in terms of his box presence and his sort of ruthless determination to to make a difference in front of goal yeah, absolutely. The the way and look, it's easy for me to say this because I don't have to find the balance. And like I say, I do acknowledge that really in the front four, you probably want two technical guys and two killers in the box. Um, and that kind of means you've got to leave someone someone quite good out. And at the moment, that full guy is potentially a Bamiang, albeit um, Martinelli hasn't quite hit his um, hit his stride at centre forward yet. So like. For Brighton on Sunday, I would I would play Smith-Rowe in one of the wide positions. I'd play Pepe on the right. I'd play Smith-Rowe on the left. I'd play Odegaard number 10. And I'd, I'd play Martinelli um, number 9 and give him 60, 70 minutes there um, and see how it goes. Um, but for me, again, 
it's like Martinelli doesn't fit this Arsenal team, and I mean that in the best way. Mm. I mean, I mean, he he is the antidote to the things that are wrong with the way that we play. You know, much in the way that Alexis was. And uh, I, I put out a couple of tweets this week, um, which which provoked some really interesting responses. And I think that's a really interesting um, kind You're of provoking subject. an interesting response right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my daughter really wants to see Gabrielle Martinelli play. She's uh, she's mad for more Brazilians. She, she sounds like how <laughs> I sound on most podcasts, to be fair. So. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and and so the the thing is with Martinelli is it's the fact that he doesn't fit that makes him so. And you just look at um, I looked at the stats from the Fulham game where he started um, the other week, and of course we drew, and and everyone feels bad about that Fulham game. But look at our XG and look at how much of it he contributed to, both with shots and because he just kept, you know, getting his head down, getting the ball to the byline, and getting the ball in the area. Like it's not just in terms of shots. It's he like he always wants to make something happen, and um. And and I I put um I was responding to someone with a tweet and I was saying like I hate this idea that we have to smooth out Martinelli's rough edges because Martinelli is his rough edges that's the point of him, and it's the same with um with Suarez right? You look at Luis Suarez. Luis Suarez never lost those rough edges. He still has them. He's still not what you'd call a technically brilliant footballer or dribbler. I mean, he is a good dribbler, but he's not aesthetically pleasing as a dribbler because he does a bit like Martinelli does. And I I think we will get this more next season. Two things we will understand more about two of our young players next season is one, that Smith-Rowe, there is a goal scorer waiting to get out. Two, Martinelli's a really good dribbler. Right, he really, really is. He just, it just doesn't look good when he does it because he does. It's not smooth, and he doesn't throw stepovers and things like that. And he makes a lot more sense when you understand that Ronaldo's his idol, and what Martinelli wants is the quickest route to the back of the net possible, whether it's for him or a teammate. And that is that is really difficult to defend against sometimes. Now, sometimes that means he's going to shoot wide. Sometimes that means he's going to put a cross in the six-yard area and the keeper's going to get it. But his relentlessness means he will keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And he has that attacking by volume um, thing that uh, most of our other attackers don't have. And and the thing is as well, he, like he's all he's very very rarely peripheral in a game as well. So. Um, Another tweet I put out last night that that, that actually was a little less tongue in cheek because I do realise that you know you still want to work on Martinelli's technique and things like that. I'm not saying don't do anything with it, but I, I'm saying be careful about you know discouraging him from doing the things that makes him great. Like with Pepe, Pepe's gone from maybe this time last year, Pepe veered be- between calamity and brilliance and now it's anonymity and brilliance and that is progress. Mm. Like he's not enormously involved in build up and things like that, but he's not like just twatting the ball into the upper tier or letting it run on- under his foot anymore. Um, when So so he's like, he's not, he's not really um, a plus all the time, but he's not a minus anymore when he's not doing those things. So, so he's, he's a plus overall. Right. And, and I think it's the same with Martinelli because he's so involved all the time. Now, I, I still think in terms of being a number nine, yeah, he probably needs more development in that position, which is why I'd give him Sunday, maybe give him 60 minutes there. Obviously, this game, he makes the run from the left and it's it's kind of easier to do that. But you see the instinct there. You see that the, um, like you say, that it's a clever run, that it's a cool finish 
with everything he does, that he doesn't thrash at it, that he sees that he needs to take two touches. And and I agree with you. I think you've just got to find a way to get to get this guy in. I, I'm thinking more next season. Obviously, there's only one game left this season, so we don't have to agonise over it now. But over the summer, Arteta should be thinking, how do I get this guy in more? And look, it might mean sharing game time again. And instead of sharing game time between Willian and Pepe, maybe share that between Martinelli and Pepe next season, because they are quite similar. And maybe your balance does like I don't think you can have a front three that's Martinelli, Pepe and Abamyang. I don't think there's enough technical security in there. You've got I think you've kind of got to have well you've got to have Saka anyway, but you've got to have Saka and, and one of Smith Rowe word guard. You you need that that balance in there but yeah basically next season my plan if I were Arteta would be to say right Willian's out of the picture we don't need him not just because he's been rubbish but actually by the numbers we don't need him if by some miracle he was sold or or left this summer we don't need to buy a replacement we have a lot of attackers so so let's share that game time maybe between Pepe and Martinelli and have one of them as the impact sub um, so again, we don't have to change too much. If you've got Martinelli on for 60 minutes and he doesn't do it, bring Pepe on for the last half an hour or vice versa. And I think you can really, really start to get something out of these guys. And then eventually, really what you're looking at, I think, is Martinelli replacing Aubameyang, whether that's as a number nine or as or as the guy on the wide left, because he, he does Aubameyang-like things at times. But definitely, definitely this summer, one of the principal things on Arteta's mind should be, how do I get more out of this guy next year? And that doesn't mean he has to play every single minute or the game or the team has to be built entirely around him. Um, that he, he might get to that stage this time next year. We might be having that conversation, but it should be about how do I make this guy one of like the main 14 players in my team? Yeah, I mean, look, small sample sizes can lead to bad use of data. But guys, Gabriel Martinelli leads the team in expected goals per 90 and leads the team in expected assists per 90. (laughs) So use that guy. Find a way to use that guy. Um, You know, I don't think we need to get an Odegaard really because he didn't play much. What I will say is I felt when he came on, he struggled to to quicken the tempo and really do anything. But in almost Ozillian fashion, he produces an inch-perfect assist. And what I will say is, unfortunately, comparisons to Ozil are loaded because Ozil has has become kind of a pariah for Arsenal fans. But, like, Ozil was an excellent player for us before the second contract and one that you'd feel pretty lucky to have. I see Odegaard and Ozil having a lot of similarities because very left-footed, on his left foot, it's a wand. He can play it in the spaces other players can't. But also drifts, drifts a little bit. And if we're going to pay at the absolute top of the market and other players like Awar and Buendia are in consideration, I think it's a really close-run thing. But let's finish with this just real quick. Paul? Joe Willock has, it says here, scored, hang on, I want to get the data right, all the goals. He's scored all the goals. In the last six appearances he's made, he has just about matched Pepe's goal total for the season. (laughs) Um, It is stunning what he's doing. Let's be clear. He's spoofing XG. This is a purple patch. He's not going to do this all the time. I have come up with this wild theory that Joe Willock is a striker. That, like, just take this player who cannot pass to save his life. And if you, by the way, if you look at the data, he cannot pass to save his life. Take him and find a way to just put him in the box because he seems to score goals there, although it may be his late second man runs that make him so effective. Mm-hmm. Watching Joe Willick score all the goals, I'm going to just put the hard question to you. Do you feel more excited by, wow, we have turned him in six games into a 20 million pound sale, that's exciting, or 
wow, we have to keep this player? Um, the former. I think um, we've seen in recent times, uh, we're not very good at this buy low, sell high business. I mean, his stock is, it's Bitcoin-ish right now. As you said, he can't. He played forty-four. To, to, to be times. fair, that's a bad. That that's actually a really, really bad analogy right now because Bitcoin just had a fifty percent crash over the last two days. So it's the Four. opposite of Bitcoin. It's Dogecoin. <laughs> uh, I, uh, actually, I gotta go, Elliot. Um, <laughs> Call your broker. <laughs> go yeah. on, get on Coinbase. Off you go. Um, buy the yeah, dip. I, buy the dip. I think I've lost a hundred dollars there. Um, look. Uh, he played forty-four times for his last year. Mm. He did not put up those kind of goal-scoring numbers. <clears throat> Um, he had a goal or two across all competitions. Can't remember. I've probably done him, done him a disservice. He's a player that's there. hard to fit, isn't he? That's the really hard thing. If you really had a position for him and really knew where it was going to be, my goodness, yeah. you know that that skill set of being able to get in the box and score goals. I mean, it's worth it's worth a hundred million pounds if you do it every game. But it knowing is. how to use him is it is the trick. And we've seen when we used him, he certainly didn't play like this. Look, he's got great legs. He's a hmm. presser. He'll oh, go yeah. past players. He'll carry the ball. Uh, just don't ask him to lay it on for the striker in the box. It might bobble across to him after he tried to do something different. Like, I love Joe Willock, but I was always hoping that that bit of quality in his delivery would come when he settled and calmed. But I think that's just a factor of his game. Um, he's really good at running with the ball. He's He's got the legs to press. He's he's not still not super switched on defensively. I mean, he'll make a lot of tackles and interceptions, but you'll see the game going on and him kind of... He's always thinking about when the ball comes back to his team and he can get forward even when they're defending. Um, like, he can be in position, kind of doing the right things, but the intensity comes when his team gets the ball. He doesn't have that intensity without the ball. Um, so he's good at pressing, but he's not... He's not the guy I'd want to bet the house on when you're trying to keep it compact and they're coming at you. Um, and I think you take the money and the only problem is I don't know that Newcastle is going to be super generous with the money because it's Newcastle. But somebody out there should be looking at him uh, thinking they got themselves a little Bitcoin here. And we take our money because we didn't do it for Maitland-Niles. We haven't done it for a number of players along the way. Uh, buy low, sell high. Uh, it's. I mean, he's. Re- you can see from his comments, he's ready to go. He's ready to to break out on his own. And it's a great advertisement for our academy, for developing players, for the Arsenal way. Uh, other kids will look at that, and you know, they'll want to play for Arsenal's first eleven. But a hell of a second best is is playing in the uh, Premier League, getting a big contract, being a star. Uh, scoring goals as an Arsenal product, so it's a win-win-win. And good luck him, and God, God bless, God bless him. I think he suits the, like you say about the striker. I could see him as a four-four-two support striker. I could see him playing in a, a classic old-style four-man midfield, where that uh, second midfielder bombs forward. Uh, into the box. Um, I just don't see him as a very Arsenal player. He doesn't have the quality, the passing. But I can see why we brought him on a lot late in games for the pressing and for the getting up the pitch and getting into the box. Yeah. 
Well, let's leave it there because there's there's a lot more we can do. We'll have future pods. We still have the Brighton game. We can break down all the permutations for this season um, and and what could happen in the final day for the Brighton game. Um, we'll also have an instant reaction for that and then all our postseason stuff. V- grades for the, how the players performed, uh, season summaries, just the whole nine yards. We, we got all that and then we'll go into transfer stuff. We have special correspondence for the Euros. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. I owe everybody uh, winners for the review contest. But you know what? Since I've run out of time and everybody has to get off this call right now, what I'm going to do is push it to the Monday show. So Monday, that's a good time. Season's over. That means you still have three days to get reviews in and and we'll pick an extra person. We'll pick three people to send a shirt to for writing reviews. So I apologize for not getting that done today, but we'll get it done uh, ASAP right after that. So thank you so much. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paz. Woohoo. Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto, thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We love you and we will talk to you for one last time after Arsenal 10, Brighton Milk.